When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Susan Griffin, author of the craft book, Out of Silence Sound, Out of Nothing Something. The craft is making you sort of hold a, a, a tuning fork up to what you say. And if there's anything false about it or not quite accurate about it, you'll pick it up through the tuning fork. It doesn't sound right. We'll be back with Susan Griffin after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say, it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. 
My interview today is with Susan Griffin, an award-winning poet, writer, essayist, and playwright who has written 19 books, including A Chorus of Stones, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. She was named by Utney Reader as one of the top 100 visionaries of the new millennium. She won an Emmy for her play Voices. Her new craft book is called Out of Silence Sound, Out of Nothing Something. The book breaks down the creative process step-by-step, guiding the reader through a practical course on how to begin and end a work of literature. The book offers short vignettes on craft and process issues. The chapters are pithy and designed to help and guide writers through blocks and challenges of all kinds. The book also includes autobiographical accounts of Griffin's own writing experiences mixed in with the craft and process tips and advice she has learned to value the most over the past 50 years. We began the discussion with Susan Griffin talking about what inspired her to write a craft book. I've been wanting to do it for a long time. I've taught writing for over 50 years, uh, both in classrooms and one-on-one. And I love the whole process. I love teaching writing because I love the process of writing myself. It, It fascinates me. And so over the years, I've learned a lot about how to teach it and what's important. And finally, it just seemed natural to me to write it down. So one of the things that I think is very notable about your book is that it's really, really short snippets. So you have three sections before the beginning, writing and the means to an end. And then you talk about process, material worlds, making it whole, telling stories, second sight. But then you have these little things like sound or new and old or reverie. So tell me about, since you've been teaching writing for 50 years, why you decided to write this sort of pithy uh, book about writing that's structured like this. Again, it it felt natural to the teaching I've done, a natural outcome of the teaching. Oftentimes a student has a particular problem they come in with in their process, like uh, very often they've they've stopped and they don't have faith in their work anymore and I help them through that. But there's also craft issues or process issues that come up. And I oftentimes give a a little speech, you know, I mean, it's it's a mini speech about a paragraph long about, um, you know, how to solve this particular problem, how to approach it. And so in a way, what I've done is written down things that over the years I've told my students and it doesn't go on for for long. Each section doesn't go on for long because it's sort of intolerable to have somebody talk at you for a long time. You know, it's easier to absorb if it's short and sweet. So let's talk first about the title, Out of Silence Sound, Out of Nothing Something. Um, Tell me what you meant by that. You know, nobody quite knows. I mean, I've never spoken to a writer or read a writer saying they know what happens with the creative process. And there was a period when I, I, I bought some very expensive books and tried to look at the neurology of creativity or the, you know, the, the physical and psychodynamics, so however they describe it scientifically. And no, nobody has a clue, really, the truth is. So it's a kind of miraculous process. How, how, does, how does Les Miserables come to be, you know, when, when there was nothing before? We, we, we knew nothing about Jean Valjean. Who, who the hell is he? We, you know, we had no idea. Suddenly this epic novel comes into being how did that happen you know and so I was trying to capture the process by which it happens we can't give scientific explanations at least those who write can't and I don't think the scientists can either 
but we can talk about the process. And so out of silent sound, out of nothing, something is sort of that idea of the magic that there was once nothing there. That's right. And sound is, is critical. If you if you notice that the, the, the first section, which is on process, really, and the process of how you begin writing, it ends with sound. And sound is, is really critical in the whole process. Oftentimes, a writer is something like a musician or a composer. The last note sort of pushes you in direction, in a direction where you'll find the next note. Is that how it happens for you? I mean, do you hear some kind of rhythm in your head? Yes, it does. Or I'll hear a, a, a sentence like, do you hear some kind of rhythm in your head? Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Is the rhythm in your head? So, you know, in other words, I, some, some sentence like, do you hear some kind of rhythm in your head strikes me as interesting or evocative and I especially in writing a poem but also in prose I'm I'm writing a biography now Phoebe Hurst and sometimes late at night just as I'm about to go to sleep a sentence pops into my head about how I you know when I'm trying to construct a certain scene from her life a sentence will pop into my head and that's the key to everything that sentence not only the content but the way the way it's the way it sounds one of your first sections is called mystery and you're talking about the inexplicable magic by which something comes from nothing. And it sounds like from what you were saying that you used to take out these big heady books about creativity and neuroscience and all of this. So it sounds like your journey has been maybe from starting in a creative place to getting into a much more deep um, scientific place back to sort of embracing the mystery? Well, it, it was just a journey for this particular book. Not, not my, I, I, I never looked at, I, I, science fascinates me and I, I love science. And of course, like everyone, I love Oliver Sacks and he, he, he's uh, great at intuiting a lot of things, but that's, that's the, that's the secret. He kind of understands the mirror. He, he understands there are miracles involved and mysteries involved, you know? Um, so anyway, um, my process generally was I began as a poet. So I began with sound because poetry is all about sound. And then I, I moved to nonfiction and I've written some fiction too. So within that mystery and your kind of tips for people, you have a little section on reverie. And that's also in the beginning. And I really enjoyed that. And you sort of use, you use this anecdote about how like a kid in school, if they're looking out the window, can get in trouble, but actually looking out the window and allowing yourself to daydream and allowing your mind to go can be the key to all these new ideas coming through that open door. Yes, there's, there's a passage uh, from Emerson's, uh, I, from his journals, I believe, where he goes to a, a Sunday service and the preacher is speaking. And he, he himself used to be a preacher and then he left and, and uh, became uh, more independent than from, from Christian thinking. But he, but, um, he found this, the preacher's sermon very boring and he looked out the window and he found the snow utterly absorbing. I love that. <laughs> so you have to you have to respect children. Not that they shouldn't have to learn certain things. I I do believe they they must. 
I think too that the I this overall idea in your book has a lot to do with potential and maybe what is quiet inside. You you have a section on nothing and you're talking about maybe when writers feel like nothing's coming and you're talking a little bit about about meditation and how we often seek for emptiness, but we don't necessarily want that as writers. But at the same time, there's also that feeling where we feel like, oh my gosh, there is nothing coming my way. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very scary. I mean, writing is really up and down in terms of mood. You, you know, you, you feel one day exhilarated because you've solved some sort of problem or you've gotten the right approach. And then the next day you have a, another problem or maybe even the next hour, another problem evolves and and you don't know what to do. And, and a lot of writing is an emotional task. You have to learn to tolerate those ups and downs. You have to tolerate the, the down periods. And sometimes it's just a matter of waiting. In fact, it's very important for you to pose, pose the problem. Like I want to move from talking about Missouri to talking about California. How do I do that? You don't know. You don't have an immediate response. And if you come up with one too quickly, it can be very conventional and boring and not be the right fit for what you're doing, really, not advance your work at all. But if you say if you admit to yourself, you don't know and you and you let and you let some time pass, then something interesting will come to you. I know that you wrote this about process and the things you've learned and you've shared so much about your journey, but for you, how did you make peace with that, with the waiting? How do you have an example of, of when that happened for you? It happens nearly every day, but I, I made peace with it over time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn 80 in a couple of weeks. So I've, I spent a lot of time writing and a lot of time going through this process of not knowing and then knowing. Grace Paley once said, you know, uh, writing is about accepting, acknowledging what you know that you didn't know you knew. So there's this knowledge deeper inside you that you want to reach. And that, that's, that, it's like, that knowledge is like a cat, not a dog. You know, a dog, you can say, come here. You know, come here, Rover, come to my knee, not a cat. A cat will run away if you do that. You just have to be very quiet and send a wish almost psychically to the cat, come over here, but no pressure. <laughs> so that's what you have to develop in yourself to your own thoughts in relation to your own thoughts. With that, you also have this idea of soft focus. Yes, that's just describing it's the soft focus if you're if you're if you're trying too hard it, it it's that the cattle leave the room you don't want to try so hard you want to have it you it, that's why there's a section in the book called walking and what a lot of writers rebecca solnit has more than one book devoted to walking take a walk even if you're just walking downstairs to your kitchen to get a cup of tea walk a little bit move and uh you, you cultivate this way of waiting that is not entirely passive, but is accepting. You also talk about in walking, you talk about how there's a gate in literature. A, oh, yes, a gate, as in the rhythm. Yeah, G-A-I-T as opposed to G-A-T-E. Yeah. <laughs> yes, most literature uh, has a gate. And uh, the, the, the really great stuff, all, all of it has a gate. If it's nonfiction, fiction, poetry, it doesn't matter. You could dance to it, basically. 
So hearing that gate, that gate opens gates. Let's put it that way. The gate, G-A-I-T, opens gates, G-A-T-E-S. Yeah. You also talk about narration and you say, we don't think about narration as a form. And you're talking about ancient storytelling. And how, how would you explain narration as a form to new writers? Well, I, 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 I would go back to the simpler way of speaking and just tell, tell a story. And sometimes something that has happened to you has not been shaped yet into a story. So I would tell them, you know, get into a restful position and dwell in your memories for a while and see if there's any stories there that you've never really told. I think that there's a lot about your book, too, that is embracing a path of non-resistance, that you're you're telling the writers you know, don't fight it, be allowed to dream, hang back. And one of my favorite sections was called Aikido. And in general with Aikido, you want to use your opponent's energy coming at you to move beyond you. So instead of pushing back, you move in the same direction as the the force that's coming with you and kind of turn yes. so that they fall over from the own their own force. Can you describe a little more about using that idea in writing? Suppose you feel ashamed of something and it's keeping you from telling the story because you feel shame. What I would suggest to someone who feels that is to begin by writing about the shame, expressing the shame and feeling it, let, let yourself feel it intensely and study it and write about it. And that will open you up to other reflections and insights. Yeah. And I think, you know, because a lot of people listening won't have have read this yet, that you're also talking about that new things can come from that. Like, for instance, you're sharing a story that I think it was in this section, like maybe you want to recount something with a relative or someone you met only one time and you can't remember their name. And so you get so stuck on trying to remember their name, but instead of becoming fixated on trying to like research your family tree and figure out who this person was that came for an afternoon that had a conversation with you that lasted, if you interrogate the memory itself, that you get richer material. And if you admit to to your lack of knowledge too, that the lack of knowledge is part of the process and everybody has that. Everybody forgets names or has met somebody who long ago, who, you know, is is lost, lost to any, any uh, of your knowledge. And so you, um, you know, if you admit to that, it's authentic and um, your energy isn't involved in, in what is uh, uh, bound to failure. And that is to try to change history. You can't, you don't remember it and you won't remember it. Do you think that there's, like, how could some of that transfer to fiction? I mean, it wouldn't be that you don't remember something, but how do you think that idea of Aikido could transfer to fiction? Suppose you have a character whose motives you don't really understand. You can feel the, the texture of these, of, of, of what they do. You, you, can, you can sense the mood coming across their face uh, before they do something, but you can't really understand the motivation. Then as the author, you can say that. 
can say no one really understood why it came it came as if out of um, no motive at all. It seemed perpetually perplexing why this person behaved like that. In other words, take the very problem. I, I also call that turning the sock inside out. You know, take the very problem and use it because whatever is authentic is interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things, another idea embedded. You you sell you talk about it specifically, but um, embedded in your in this book is the idea that you understand what you're trying to say by actually writing it. That you can't yes. think your way through, and that you're you're talking about the sentence level, and you say in there. Um, I mean, you you talk a little bit about Michelangelo and how the angel was inside of the marble waiting to get out, but that it's the same for writing and that as you continue to write, your sentences themselves may reveal to you new things that you didn't even know or new directions or new insights about the character. Can you talk yes. a little bit more about that and maybe an example from your writing? Well, I can't come up with it. And I mean, all, all writing is like that constantly. So I, you know, I don't, I, I can't remember the actual process of everything, but, but, um, but as you're um, constructing a sentence, you go through a process uh, after a while, not a, maybe not a beginning writer, but anybody who's an old hand at it, even a medium hand at it, you will have put down a word that's wrong. You know, that's, it just doesn't sound right. It may be you know, dictionary correct, but it just doesn't have the right feel. And then you, so you're searching for the right word and then no, this, this clause should go before that clause. And you don't know why, but you just have the feeling that it works better that way. And as you are crafting the sentence, you begin to understand its content better. The, the very writing of the sentence gives you a deeper knowledge. You thought you knew a certain amount, but there's more to know and you know it. I, I've had the experience so often with people where they've had a whole experience that they've been through psychotherapy over and they've told to friends and they've done all this healing around it. And writing as a whole is another stage. It's much deeper, takes you much deeper into the experience. So no matter how much work you've done around a, a various experience, when you write it down, you're going to go through another layer of work. Yeah, you write in there, what transformed the writer is not catharsis, as in therapy, but craft. And yes. I was reading this, like, in a much bigger way, not just about nonfiction, but just about not necessarily relying on catharsis, whether it's like a, a new idea that comes to the page and you write it in fiction and it comes out and it feels better for you, but how craft is like the guiding light. Yes. Uh, when, when, you know, it's like a tuning fork. The craft is making you sort of hold a, a, a tuning fork up to what you say. And if there's anything false about it or not quite accurate about it, you'll pick it up through the tuning fork. It doesn't sound right. So it's, it's, a, it's an intuitive, uh, it's another layer of knowing, another way of knowing. It's not strictly what we would call rational. It is in the end quite rational, but it's, it's not accessible as rational to you at that moment. But, but but there's this other layer of knowing that writers must be in connection with all the time, which is intuitive. We call intuitive. Is there anything that you've come to learn about that, your intuition, and like where that all comes from? 
No, it's it's such a it's a wonderful mystery. I've I've gotten very familiar with it. I live by it. Uh, it's it's part of my everyday work. But no, I I haven't learned a lot about it. Do you feel it in other areas of your life? That sense of intuition. I wish I did. I probably do now. As I've gotten older, I've been able to incorporate that more into my daily life. But when I was younger, I should have had it and didn't. <laughs> you speak also of writing when we are crafting plot. A lot of times we're just thinking about and then, and then, and then, and then. Yeah. But you have this section called and thus, and you have um, a little paragraph. I'll just read it to cite a more subtle example. What you have heard is true that's Carolyn Forche's account of a famous and harrowing journey to El Salvador that she took over 30 years ago. That book is threaded with a continuing question, one that gradually develops from why did her guide invite her on this journey to what did he want to teach her to, by implication, how did the conditions she witnessed come to pass? And finally, what was she supposed to do with what she learned? A question that in the end and silently, the book leaves each reader to answer as well. So, and thus, is sort of this idea, I mean, it's not necessarily pressure on the writer, but it's like, how do you wrap it up? What does this all mean? And and that is a meaning that comes to you as you work. In other words, you, you're, you're wondering about it, but, and, and you do interrogate what you've written and interrogate the experience, but not, again, not with a soft focus, not with a hard focus, not, you're not an interrogator, <laughs> and, you know, to give reference to what Carolyn Fauché was witnessing in San Salvador. Is it enough, though, to just report on something? Like, does it have to have some meaning at the end? Or do you as a writer have to do at it something with it? Especially like for you, if you're writing about something toxic in the environment, is the book enough? Well, of course. I mean, you know, writing about it doesn't relieve you of your obligation as a citizen or a human being. They're two different things. but. And uh, conversely, or or along with that, you you know, you can't look at writing as a political task, even though it does have politics and it does have political reverberations. But you have to, you, your obligation has to be to the truth, to authenticity. Yeah, I think it's interesting for nonfiction writers who are writing about really difficult things or things that are wrong, injustices in our communities. It is not their job, though, to become an activist. That's their choice. I guess their job is to tell the truth. Well, it's it's all of our jobs to become activists. Whatever our daytime jobs are, are, whatever craft or whatever we, we, we participate in, your obligations, as I said, as a citizen are not fulfilled by what you do and during your workday, you have to, you know, they're, they're separate. They're not entirely separate. I mean, I've written a lot of books with strong political import, but if you take A Chorus of Stones, which which is, uh, you know, about nuclear, the development of nuclear weapons and specifically the targeting of civilians 
and the toxicity of nuclear weapons. I included that all in the stories I wrote. It was at the center of those stories. So it's a, in, in a way, it's a book with great political implications. But as far as crafting the book, I was telling a story. I was telling the story of how these weapons evolved. And that's what gives it any power, is that story. It's, it's not... Um, you know, haranguing people with my political view. Uh, but I'm happy to go harangue people with my political view and pick it and pass out leaflets. And I've done that, <laughs> but not in my writing. We'll be right back to this interview after some words about one of the sponsors of this episode. Have you ever heard of Scribophile? It's an online community where writers from beginners to published professionals can submit work and get feedback from readers around the world. Published authors say the community of readers helps them hone their craft and become better storytellers. You can also learn about specific writing topics with Scribophile's new array of video-based writing classes in fiction and nonfiction. Best-selling author L.S. Hawker is leading a class on writing page-turning thrillers, and Karen Albright-Lynn, award-winning novelist and editor, shares instruction on mastering the art of subtext. Those are just two of many classes offered this spring on topics from novel writing to character development. Classes run from two to six weeks and feature live face-to-face video, a unique personal format among the variety of writing classes offered on the web. Classes feature enough time for you to ask questions and have meaningful discussions on craft. Learn more about Scribophile's online reading and writing community and all the class offerings at Scribophile.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-O-P-H-I-L-E.com. And now, back to the interview. You know, some of your work, and you talk about endings, that sometimes the ending comes to you before you're actually finished. Um, And especially with nonfiction, a lot of times you know the ending from the very beginning. Not always. Can you share more about that? Uh, well, it, the fact that you have your ending doesn't mean that your work is finished. It means that you have to earn that ending. You have to somehow earn it is, is the only word I think. You have, to, you have to fulfill what it seems to have um, concluded, which is also a promise, the promise of what's going to be in the book that allows you to end in this way. So, and that that's on every level, on the aesthetic level, the music of it, it has to make sense that you end with that music. It has, you know, you can't glob on a, a different kind of music at the end of a symphony. You just can't do that. It has to come, the themes come from the musical, the music that, that precedes the ending in a symphony. And, and it's the same in a book. And um, it's, it's also true in the stories that are told and, uh, the tone. And so all, all of that you are responsible to. So yes, you have an ending. That's great. But but you have a great deal of responsibility handed to you at the same time. You talk in there about sticking the landing. So everything you're just talking about, you know, with the music and the sound and, and finding that right place. How do you know personally? And how do you tell young writers or even old writers if they've stuck it or not? You feel it. It's a feeling. And it's a feeling for which the metaphor of this kid landing on two feet after doing spectacular somersaults and everything in the air 
uh, is what you're looking for. And I have a, a, a good friend, the writer, Elizabeth Rosner, who's a wonderful writer, and sh she teaches too. And we came up with the same metaphor, not even, not you know, I've been using that for, for at least 20 years, and so has she. And we, we haven't known each other for 20 years. So we, we both uh, came up with the same metaphor. It's very apt. It's, very, it's, 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 a, it's a very serviceable uh, metaphor that, you know, it's, you feel it. And um, I can't describe it in any other way. You know, it's sort of like, you know, writing is more like um, carpentry than, than one would think. You ask me, how, how do you sand a... Uh, uh, how do you sand a table? You know, well, the carpenter can say, well, you move your hand up and down with it, or or you, now they use these electric sanders and you do, you know, you want to use a level and all of that. But there's no replacement for the, for a master craftsperson who has the feel of the wood and the feel of how the surface radiates back to you when you've got the, the, the surface uh, leveled and smooth. There's there's no replacement for that, and you get that as a, that's one of the things that why that's one of the reasons why writers. If somebody wants to be a writer, the best way to become a writer is to write, because you need that experience. You need to begin to have the feel of things. Yeah. So it sounds like some of this is a feeling in your body. Yes, definitely. And where do you so feel it? Don't. It's a jolt. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like that's a really hard thing to teach, especially for people who might not be as in tune into their bodies. Yeah. You, you, you have to, that's why they have to uh, write a lot. It comes from experience. You can't replace the experience of doing it with teaching. And of course, like most um, writers who know this, you talk that writing is rewriting. And yes. you have to kind of get ready, like strap in. You just might have finished a draft, but you still have that time. You know, you still have to go over it yeah. again and again and again. What advice yeah. do you have about rewriting and how do you keep your will up? Well, there's, there's lots of advice I give, but one of them recently I gave to a friend who doesn't appreciate her own writing. And, and I, but I say this to other students all the time. I said, it's just as important to know what's good as to know what needs changing because you don't want to ruin what you've done that really works. You have to have an ear out for something that is, it's like a, it's like you go into a room and you see dust all over an object there and you have to dust it. You know, you know that. And that's, just, it's, it's a very similar, it's, 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 it's really not much more highfalutin than that. But when you're, when you're reading a passage, and something sticks. It, one one way, if you're reading a passage out loud, and I recommend to everybody read your re writing out loud. I don't think I even said it in the book, but you should. And and you'll find yourself reading more quickly over the passages that really need a little bit of work. In other words, you can you can tell they're not exactly eloquent. They're not beautiful. They're not mellifluous. And so you you speed up as if to get past them quickly. So that tells you. Here is where you need to do some rewriting. So how much do you think that writing can be taught? A lot. It's, it's like a skill. It's, it's a craft and a skill. And, the pro and also it's a process and all of that can be taught. 
but what can't what what doesn't work is if somebody wants to be a writer as opposed to write. That's a difference. If you want to be a writer, as in Hemingway drinking gin and flying back and forth to Paris and on romantic battles, wearing uniforms and all right, do all that, but it has nothing to do with writing. If you want to write, you have to write, which can be to somebody who doesn't really love writing, it can be really tedious. But if you love writing, as I do, then writing a lot is uh, pleasurable, even if it's hard. What do you hope, you know, people walk away with from reading your book? Either with a greater understanding of the creative process or uh, a greater ability to enter the creative process or both. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, perhaps influenced, but I read him very late, late. Well, I, I hadn't finished uh, Chorus of Stones yet, so I was in my um, 40s when I first started to read him. But I love him, and, and he's, he's uh, one of my favorite writers. This is John Berger from his book Pig Earth, which I recommend to everybody to read. To approach experience, however, is not like approaching a house. Life, as the Russian proverb says, is not a walk across an open field. Experience is indivisible and continuous at least within a single lifetime and perhaps over many lifetimes. I never have the impression that my experience is entirely my own, and it often seems to me that it preceded me. In any case, experience folds upon itself, refers backwards and forwards to itself through the reference of hope and fear, and by the use of a metaphor, which is at the origin of language, it is continually comparing like with unlike, what is small with what is large, what is near, with what is distant. I, I love that that invocation of metaphor. A lot of the devices in, in uh, language impress upon me, and I think readers, the connections we all have inherently, whether it's a right-wing writer. I don't know of many. There are a few right-wing writers, but most of them are left-wing. But it's, it's not an ideological uh, expression. It's more just in the language itself. That metaphor, for instance, is something that connects not only us, but connects whatever we're talking about to the whole natural world. And uh, so I love that about language. And it, it includes within it an understanding of how dependent we are, interdependent we are as a species. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you liked? Yeah, I'll read. I'll read from the book we're talking about, the the new one called "Out of Sil Out of Silence, Sound Out of Nothing, Something," and this section changed. It didn't happen suddenly or even overnight. As I remember it, I made my first attempts at writing when I was about ten years old. I was by myself in the back bedroom of my grandparents' home, the room with peach-colored walls that had been designated as mine. A single bed where I slept was placed against the wall, facing my grandmother's sewing machine, which was placed against the opposite wall. There was a chair she used while sewing, but I never sat in it. I preferred sitting on the floor when I wrote, or attempted to write, or thought about writing, laboriously printing words in a thick, narrow, rectangular pad filled with newsprint that made ink bleed. My stated intention, what I told everyone I was doing, was to write a novel. I certainly had enough material. My immediate family had been torn apart almost violently by my mother's persistent alcoholism. She had an affair with a man in our neighborhood 
though her drinking preceded that dalliance by many years. When my parents divorced, we all went our separate ways. My sister to my great aunt's house, 600 miles north. My father to a shabby bachelor's apartment in North Hollywood. My mother to a small room in the San Fernando Valley. Me to my mother's parents in Los Angeles. It was a dramatic story filled with pain and loss. But at 10 years of age in 1953, it never occurred to me to tell it. From the heavy silences within and outside my family, I sensed my parents' divorce and my mother's alcoholism was shameful. In any case, I was aiming for something more heroic. Novels I gathered from what was popular at the time, think of the naked and the dead or from here to eternity, had to be about combat and soldiers of some kind. So that was the subject I chose. There would be a soldier involved and a woman who loved him waiting for his return. The problem was, of course, that except for loss, I knew hardly anything at all about war, nor did I have any idea about how to conduct research. However, the main problem was that beyond my ambition, I had no interconnection to the subject. So no wonder the writing came out in tiny spurts before the well ran entirely dry. I was, however, learning. So I'll tell you about how this evolved was that um, my editor wanted me to have something, something that unified everything in the book. And uh, I wasn't sure why he didn't feel it was already unified. But I thought, well, I'll have it. I'll write an essay about the origins of creativity. Hence, I started reading all these scientific books about neuro, the neurostructure of the brain and all of that. And, uh, and I start, I wrote a few pages and it just, felt like it would be like adding a lead weight to the rest of the book and uh, that it needed more a quality of narration. And finally, I realized, oh, the story I can tell is my own and, and it can have humor. And so that's how this, this evolved. Where do you write? I have a, a study. I'm, I'm speaking from it now. You can see books near my just in back of me. Um, and so I do a lot of writing here, but I also write in my dining room. So it's, it's sort of place for eating or writing <laughs> or talking about writing. Cause I meet with students there too. It's a big zinc table, big zinc covered table. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I haven't been able to do it, uh, since the COVID debacle, but I used to love to go to museums so that I'd switched to, you know, looking at things to visual art rather than oral art. And, and I'd inevitably come back with new ideas for writing from doing that, actually. I don't really, I, I don't feel the need to get away from writing, but I do feel the need to get away from obligations and uh, tasks and deadlines. <laughs> who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Friends who are also writers. They're, they're very helpful. I have dear friends who are wonderful writers and uh, they, they know how important what they say is, can be. And uh, they have good, very good ears for, for prose and poetry both. How have you dealt with rejection? Yeah, I, I, th I, I find that a very interesting question. And I don't really know. Rejection is hard. I think it's hard for anybody. And, um, what I say to my students is don't give the power to anybody else. 
if somebody says something that rings a bell that seems, oh, there, I, I felt I thought that myself, then that's useful. But if you don't agree, don't don't give away the power. Just that person, you know, you have to remember that major writers who you would think were doing similar things and would appreciate each other did not, you know. So don't give the store away to anyone. It's hard, but I try not to. And what is your favorite word? I don't have a favorite word, but I like the word nuance a lot recently because we seem to be lacking it in our political discourse. Although I think there are lots of people on the left who have nuance, but there are some people even on the left who don't. And uh, it's very important right now, especially important. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'm really appreciative. It's been great to talk to you. Terrific. Great questions. If you like today's show with Susan Griffin, author of the craft book, Out of Silent Sound, Out of Nothing Something, check out my first interview with Christopher Castellani on his craft book, The Art of Perspective. We talked about who's telling a story and how they are telling it, narrative distance and narrative strategy. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 390 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Rebecca Mackay, and Maggie Smith. In June, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of First Draft. If you have ideas on how we can best celebrate, drop me a line at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Merv Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.